real life. Superpowers. My overriding perspective on management comes from a conversation I actually had with Jack Welch. So Jack Welch was the CEO of General Electric. When he left General Electric, um, it was the highest market cap company in the world. He was listed as the Time Magazine's manager of the 20th century. So this is a, a Bucky. This is an expert in, in things. I said, what is the best management tip that you could give me? And he said, one word. He said, the most important thing in building relationships with employees is trust. And the best way to build trust is with transparency. If you don't have trust of your employees, you don't have anything. Hey, everyone. Would you agree that we become better people when we are around other people and ideally meeting in person? Today's guest certainly does. David Siegel is the CEO of Meetup, the largest platform in the world for finding and building a local community for people with similar interests. Meetup was acquired by WeWork in 2017. A year later, David was selected by both WeWork and Meetup's founder to succeed him as CEO. That move proved itself. Nowadays, under David's leadership, Meetup flourishes with over 40 million members, 320,000 Meetup groups and facilities, and around 12,000 Meetups around the world daily. David is also the author of a new book called Decide and Conquer, 44 Decisions That Will Make or Break All Leaders, where he outlines the challenges leaders face when starting a new position, and then presents a decision framework he applied to overcome challenges in his own career. He's an adjunct professor at Columbia University, where he teaches strategic planning and entrepreneurship. He hosts the podcast Keep Connected, dedicated, you've guessed it, to the power of community. Prior to joining Meetup, David was the CEO of Investopedia, where he tripled its revenue over a three-year period. He also served as the president of Seeking Alpha, a technology company focused on startups seeking financing, and as senior vice president for 1-800-Flowers. He's a fountain of experience, insights, and goodwill. Enjoy our conversation. We sure did. Real life. Superpowers. Up in the sky, it's a bird. It's a plane. Gentlemen, we can rebuild him. We have the technology. Real life. Superpowers. David, welcome to Real Life Superpowers. I'm excited to be here. I'm excited to learn about your superpowers and talk about other people's superpowers too. Amazing. And you dropped a new book this month. <laughs> I did. Yes. So the book is called Decide and Conquer, which does sound like a superpower kind of thing, actually, even yes. though I think uh, everyone has superpowers and that's, that's, that's the reality. And I think everyone also has a book in them and everyone can figure out how to create their book. Um, because frankly, I think everyone's story is interesting. So this story happens to be that um, I'd always wanted to write a book and I've always been obsessed with decision-making and the impact of decision. We all make thousands of decisions every single day. Sometimes, you know, Teddy Roosevelt, the president of the United States had said that the best decision is a good decision. The second best decision is a bad decision. And the worst decision is no decision. And I just have really lived that my entire life and really been the power of decision-making, but I didn't want to write a boring kind of like textbook kind of thing where, you know, you read those business books that are just like, you know, you could summarize the entire thing on two pages and they just repeat the same thing over and over again. So then WeWork happened and I got hired by WeWork and that was anything but boring. And that made for a really interesting and exciting story. So that's the book, Decide and Conquer. Good luck with the book. And, you know, you, you were saying that you sort of wanted to do this, but 
and you felt like the message was there already, but you needed the validation through WeWork. I'm not sure exactly why you felt like you needed WeWork to happen before you could bring your message to the world. Oh, what a great question. Uh, so I, I'm a teacher at Columbia and I teach strategy and entrepreneurship. And one of the things that I've always believed in the professors that I have had is content is important, but content delivered in an entertaining and engaging way is usually even more important than just kind of straight content. I'd rather be able to deliver a message where it's entertaining so that people can listen and absorb and appreciate it than deliver something that might be more intellectually interesting or more research-based, um, but yet a drier kind of story. So my challenge for myself was that even though I always did believe deeply and had studied decision-making for you know a decade plus, I didn't feel like I could package it in a way that would be engaging and entertaining for the listener because ultimately people do love storytelling. If you think about Adam Newman and WeWork, one of his superpowers was the power of storytelling. And whenever I give a speech or whenever I present, I always start off, let me tell you a story. And storytelling goes so far back to when we were little children and our parents would read books to us. And we even think of those experiences when we're hearing a story. Just suddenly everyone's faces go from looking down at, the, at their phones to like looking up. And I say, I have a storyteller. was like, oh, story time. Yay. 40 years, 50 years, 60 years. People love stories. And the truth is, is that I needed to package it in a story I felt and in multiple stories for it to really, for the message to hit home in interesting and engaging type ways. And for me, the process of running meetup when you couldn't meet up in person, which is a crazy experience to have to do, running meetup when we had been owned by WeWork and seeing the culture clashes between them and running meetup as WeWork descended from 47 billion to 40 to 30 to 20, you know, to sub 10 billion today, and how that impacted Meetup employees and then ultimately how we had to divest out of the business was so rich with crazy stories involving famous people like Bill Ackman was involved, the famous hedge fund manager, um, uh, Fred Wilson from Union Square Ventures, another very, very famous venture capitalist was involved. Obviously, Adam Newman was involved. I had met Jack Welch at different times. There's been just so many interesting, famous people that I got to engage with that I felt like in order that if you're going to put a lot of time into something, you want to bring your best self to it. And I felt like I wanted to wait until that time. So fortunately that happened. And then literally in two months, I vomited out. <laughs> like it came, it got edited. Don't worry, everyone, if you, if you end up getting the book. But uh, I vomited out 75,000 words in just two months without a without an editor, without, without a book contract, without anything. And um, I, I didn't create the book in a typical way. Let's put that without a book agent. And uh, that, that was why I waited. Which is really cool because it's like you're, so you're teaching in Colombia, which is like thesis town, right? So you're you're taking that thesis and you're humanizing it, right? So my question is this: actually, for a person like you that actually knows how to humanize it, why do you think like the academically that's not happening? Because like it's not even the storytelling; it's just making it approachable or understandable. Why I need this? Yeah, I think that it's very easy for professors and also generally people in life to be on a, on a gerbil wheel and to just wash, rinse, and repeat and do the same thing over and over and over again. And for a professor, if you have a syllabus in your class and you taught the class the first time, you're all energized and you're excited and you're doing it innovatively and it's exciting. And then you do it the second time, it's actually usually much better the second time. And you do it the third time, and you're probably even better the third time the second time. And then suddenly you start 
getting bored and you start getting rude. And, and, you, and once you do it, I just spoke to a Columbia professor and she told me this is her 30th straight semester teaching. She's taught the same course for 30 or let's say 15 to 30 straight semesters. It's very hard to bring your best self when you're repeating the same thing over and over again. And I think the challenge for all of us in life, professors and just everyone is, how do you bring creativity into the same things that you're doing over and over again? How do you bring something new and different into it? Because by working hard and trying to innovate, so one of the things that I do, for example, in my course is every course I've taught for seven semesters, every time I just take one class and I get rid of the worst performing class, and I pull the students and I add in a new class each time so that by, you know, after seven semesters, I have seven totally new classes. And it just energizes me and energizes the students to be able to do something kind of different each time. And I think I think that's the challenge that you, you refer to, that oftentimes, you know, professors also tend to be very research driven and aren't necessarily practitioners. And I think when you're a practitioner, when you're a CEO, I come into class. The first thing I do is I say, let me tell you a problem that I had in, at work today as a CEO. Let me share that problem with everyone. Let me tell you the two different options that we're thinking about. I want to first, before we talk about any of our subject matter in class, I first want to have you hear your opinion to debate what you think I should have done and what I should still do. And the students love that like practical experience of what's actually happening in the class. So, so I think it's a combination of just rotely doing the same things we've always done and not trying to, you know, push ourselves to do something different and kind of the experience of being able to um, take really practical day-to-day -day experiences and bring them into the classroom or bring them into a book um, and, uh, and not just kind of keep it in the, in the textbooks. And did you always want to inspire people and lead them? Like, how did you land in this journey and, you know, in this position? Like anyone else, it's a curvy path, extremely curvy path, filled with a lot of luck, a lot of working hard to create luck, which I'll talk a little bit about as well, which is in the book too. Um, and I'll give you a couple of, of examples. So I've always been obsessed with people and the power of people. Like I love people. Some people like love dogs. And that's a great thing to love dogs. And there's a lot of people, especially during COVID, they got a dog and just love their dogs. And that's great. Or some people love animals. Some people love the earth. And those are like really amazing things to love. And I have tremendous respect. I'm obsessed with people. I've always been obsessed with um, psychology, people's incentives, people's motivations for things. So when I started off my career, I actually started off in human resources, which is not so common that an HR manager becomes a CEO. Right. Pretty uncommon. There's very, very few examples. But I started off in human resources because human resources represents the people aspect of work. So I worked in HR and I worked on recruiting and building orientation processes to help new employees to start and training processes and management processes and motivation processes and all these different types of things that were about elevating people, making the most of people. Remember when I was at DoubleClick, when I was an HR manager, I went to the CEO of DoubleClick and he said, you know, David, you and I actually do the exact same thing. Kevin Ryan is his name. I'm in, I focus on management, organizational structure, organizing strategy, motivating people. And that's the kind of things that you do. But for me, I kept advising people. I wasn't an owner. I was just an advisor. So I said, I don't want to just be an advisor. And ultimately, I could advise someone who doesn't have the capability and nothing great would happen. I want to like 
be the person that can make the decisions and they can really be the most influential from that perspective. And that's why I decided to go back to business school and because I knew nothing about business. In HR, unfortunately, I didn't have enough business and product and sales exposure. So that was a pretty curvy path to go from HR manager ultimately to, you know, the path towards a CEO, not, not necessarily the most common thing in the world. It's interesting to me that you decided, you know, in order to take that leap to actually go to business school, because I don't know if you're in a position to answer me that thing as, you know, you're a professor and obviously you made that choice, but it always seems to me like it's sort of the, the theoretical path to take, even though I know that academia is really trying to, you know, Uh, converge the world and, and try to make it more practical. But at the end of the day, it seems to me like if you want to go down the management path, it makes more sense to just go and manage. Uh, and on the other hand, I know that the, in the United States, it's sort of, um, it's sort of a status symbol. And like in retrospect, what do you think about that decision? Should you have done that? The retrospect question is always a funny one. I always like to say to people, I love how my life is right now. So I don't know what my life would have been the other way. So I'm happy I did it because I like how my life is today. Um, I try not to do too much of like the woulda, coulda, shoulda kind of kind of things. But what I'll tell you is this. It was very, very hard decision. Number one is I was offered a job at DoubleClick to leave HR and to move to become like a business development manager. That job would have paid me all in $150,000. And I was only 26 years old, a, a lot, a tremendous amount of money. Now, the average graduate from Warden, one of the top business schools in the country at the time, was about $110,000. So I made the decision to go and have no income for two years. At the same time, we just had our first child, by the way. So we went from two salaries for two people to no salary for three people for two years. And you could say, like, what the heck were you thinking? I mean, the answer for me was... mentorship. So I had um, three really important mentors um, at DoubleClick that uh, I, I had tremendous respect for, for their business acumen and also for their as human beings and as good, good caring people. All three of them had gone to a top business school, Stanford, Warden, Harvard, places like that. And I think that had an undue influence on me, good or bad. Um, and the good thing was that, you know, I went to my parents, I said, hey, could you help me out? They, they didn't They, their, their philosophy was, we'll pay for college, we'll pay for business school. So I also had to take out over $100,000 in student loans <laughs> to go to business school. But the good thing about that is, you know, <laughs> is me punsara agra. You can take that out later if you want to. But sometimes from pain comes growth, a lot of times. And because I put so much of my own time and energy and money into this, and I still haven't paid back my student loans, by the way. 20, 20 years later, I'm still paying back my student loans on a monthly basis. Um, because of that pain, like I worked so hard to try to be successful versus like, you know, have mommy and daddy kind of pay for the thing. Right. And I think because I gave up so much, I think it was really, really valuable for me. Um, I did learn, but I think a big part of it was that I, I had to deeply support myself and put everything of myself into it. And that really helped me to grow. So you were deeply invested. Very invested. Like, literally. Not out of the comfort zone. Oh. Big time, very out of the comfort zone. And, um, and you know, I grew a lot during those years because most, most of the people in business school had come from, especially at Warden, they had come from investment banking. They had come from consulting. They were working for, on average, five years. Their spreadsheet skills were incredible. Their modeling skills were, were amazing. Um, their finance skills were incredible. And I'm taking, I majored in finance at Warden. And, you know, I didn't know anything. I had never taken a finance class in my life. 
and take a finance class in my life once. And I'm dealing with people that had majored in finance in undergrad and then spent four years working. So I worked really, really hard, unlike most people in business school who, who you know, look at, looked at it as a good opportunity for networking, building relationships, maybe starting a business on the side. Um, for me, I was all in on classes and, and case studies and, and just focused really hard. And I worked harder than, than I had, certainly an undergraduate. Which sounds like really humble because I, I have... This thought that I think if I were in your shoes, maybe I would go there, uh, but I was telling myself, hey, I could have been like uh, ma- managing the biz dev of DoubleClick. Like I'm here for, you know, the, the official validation, but at the end of the day, I'm a few steps ahead. Like, didn't you feel that confidence? I, listen, I think there's a big difference between what I like to talk about self-esteem and confidence. And I'll tell you the difference between the two. Self-esteem is kind of how you feel inside about yourself. Confidence is how you demonstrate that to the external world. And I think it's very important to have very high levels of self-esteem, to feel like, you know, good about yourself, good about your capabilities, but to have also self-reflection awareness of the things that you're not as strong in. Confidence is important, but self-esteem is much more important. So I always had a, a healthy sense of self, um, but I'm also well aware, just I am just as I am today, about the things that I am far worse than other people in and things that I constantly need to you know improve in. Um, we just did an exercise that was fun. So you know the book probably five dysfunctions of a team. It's a best selling uh, business book. And um, we just had an executive offsite last week, and we had everyone I had everyone read the book beforehand to talk about our executive team and talk about how we could improve. And one of the um, stories in five dysfunctions of team is to have every person go around the room, be vulnerable and say, here's the thing that I think where I help the team the most and bring my best sense to self to the team. And here's where I really need to focus on Here's where I don't think I'm very good at, and I could use your help in becoming much better. In. And we did have every person do that. And through that vulnerability, um, through that self-reflection, I think you end up bonding more and you build, you know, tighter relationships. So, so we try to bring those things to, to, to meet up as well. That's really beautiful. And growing up, did your parents sort of, uh, encourage you being a people person? Is that something that you felt at home or is that something that's really a hundred percent coming from you? Yeah. Like, why do you like people? It, it <laughs> suck, man. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I love it. I love it. Okay. So first of all, I'm Orthodox Jewish, and I grew up in an Orthodox Jewish home. I went to uh, Jewish schools uh, you know, my whole life, um, and I was a late bloomer. Um, the reason I love people so much is actually because, because I reflect on this quite a bit, is because I used to be incredibly shy. I used to be really shy. I was in a class um, in my school where I lived in Westchester, and the class was a group of um, geniuses. We had 16 kids in the class, this private school. 10 of the 16 went to Ivy League schools. Okay, to give you an idea, 10 of the 16. So I always consider myself kind of less smart than everyone else. I was worse in sports than everyone else, which for, for many guys, it's kind of an important thing. It shouldn't be, but it is. For, for me, at least it was. Um, and I was absolutely very shy. I was very uncomfortable around talking to girls. I remember like in seventh and eighth grade when kids were always, you know, boyfriends and girlfriends, I just would get all nervous and tongue tied and felt very uncomfortable. And even when I started high school, um, also in a modern Orthodox school called Ramaz, um, I was also very shy. So I, it was the thing I leaped, I liked the least about myself by far. It, it was something that 
really, I felt like held me back. I would have anxiety. If I ever publicly spoke, I would have tremendous anxiety, tremendous anxiety, like my bar mitzvah, tremendous anxiety, um, public speaking. Um, and just got really nervous. Um, and I think it's because of that. It's because I wanted to overcome that so much. And when I did overcome that, um, which was really more like probably during my gap year, I just mentioned Israel, um, after high school, before college, and then certainly in college, when I did overcome that, because I had struggled with it so much and I had always wanted to be someone who can, um, build meaningful relationships with people, whether it's like be popular or just, um, feel comfortable in my own skin. Um, when I finally was able to do that and then became kind of better and better at it, shall we say, um, I think it's, it had an enormous impact on the, the path of my life, frankly, to be a professor and stand in front of a class or talk at a WeWork conference to 6,000 people in a giant stadium and not really be that nervous when I'm doing that, actually, at this point, which is, which is fairly remarkable, you know, 180 degree turnaround. So I think it comes from kind of the, the pain and the challenges that I had, you know, feeling excluded and, and, and even being bullied at times, actually, um, you know, early in my elementary school life. So what happened in that gap year? I thought you were going to ask that question. So in the book, I mentioned this, actually. You know, it's funny. The the summer before the gap year, I went to a camp called Camp Moshava. And in that camp, there was this girl that liked me, shall we say. And she was like a very popular girl. And we used to like hang out together, take long walks all the time. And I'll tell you, it's funny that this is the case. But it, it, that one experience built a tremendous amount of confidence. And I just felt comfortable talking to her. And then it translated to comfort talking to other people. And then comfort just being in my own skin. And, and also getting out of, I think, the rat race of this very intense high school experience where, again, also 40% of the kids go to Ivy League schools. Like, I went to the University of Pennsylvania. It was like, oh, only there? Um, which is, you know, kind of ridiculous, um, or definitely ridiculous and, and being surrounded by people who are just your typical people rather than your hyper aggressive type people. And I think when you take a gap year, uh, and my, my middle son right now, um, it's graduating from high school is about to go on his gap year to Israel actually. Um, so when you take a gap year, it's a great year for self-reflection and for growth prior to going to, to college. So I think for me, the, the short answer, um, a girl helped me to, uh, to feel more confidence in myself, and that ended up translating into a lot of other aspects of my life. So, so in a sense, it, it, it's a perspective thing. Like what happened is you were the, you, the, there was a stereotype. It doesn't matter if it's a girl or feedback. And that stereotype was done with, and you got to like know yourself that it's different than the 16 kids that you were with. It's like I'm hearing that at, at some level you sort of found quote-unquote, your people. Uh, so maybe people that you found similar interests with and maybe that sort of didn't happen in childhood. Maybe it could have, but, you know, you, you sort of didn't realize or know and, or have the tools to communicate. And, and maybe in a way that's what made you, you know, that spark that even 
drew you towards Meetup, that you were able to sort of understand the magic of what happens when people are drawn together around the same areas and are able to be themselves and comfortable? Does that sound, does that resonate? Bingo. When someone, when, when someone actually, he lives in Israel right now, Michael Eisenberg, um, asked me if I wanted to become the, uh, the first outside CEO of Meetup. Uh, about four years ago at this point, close to four years ago at this point, I said, Meetup, I'm obsessed with Meetup. I love Meetup. I love going to Meetup. I love how Meetup cures the loneliness epidemic. I love how Meetup connects people. I was like, I was like my entire life has, Meetup helped so many people who are introverted. And at one point in my life, I was introverted. I was afraid to kind of get out there and talk to people. And I spent most Saturday nights in high school just kind of you know, watching TV, maybe going to a friend's house, but that was all I ever did on Saturday nights. And uh, it was deeply exciting to me to be able to be part of a company whose entire mission is about helping to connect people to each other. And because uh, it was had been something, you know, long ago that I had struggled with and something that I just care so deeply and passionately about. Because when people are lonely, it leads to depression, and it leads to even the extreme of depression, which I don't even want to say the word, um, and if, if, and meetup can, and has been preventing that. I know, a, I know a, a psychiatrist who I met recently, and she told me that before she prescribes medication or drugs, she prescribes meetup wow. to her clients. She said, the best way to go overcome anxiety, overcome f- fear, et cetera, is I want you to go out there and find a group that you're passionate about. I want you to meet people. And she said, only after that will we actually talk about some of the things, but I want you to go out and do things and meet people first. That's amazing. Do you feel like if Meetup was there in your youth, you would have used it or would you have been too shy? Uh, knowing me, I probably would have been too shy. And if my parents had suggested I go, I would have wanted to do the opposite of that. I think a lot of times you need to do things at the right time for yourself and not necessarily be rushed to do them. People have their journeys and people have their timelines for things. Um, as a parent, you know, you know that as a friend, you know that. And I think when people try to interject things and accelerate um, someone to get to a different place that they're not ready for, uh, it doesn't help. And, you know, it's the whole concept of sometimes fast is slow and slow could be fast. Um, the analogy could be even we work where they went so fast that now they got just, you know, so much bad, bad things happened, and, you know, cascaded and, and ended up being slow and sometimes slow and incremental on the human personal psychological level is the fastest way that you could go. So I don't think I would have at that particular time. I think I needed to be ready. And why do you think that they trusted you to lead Meetup? They didn't know better. <laughs> it seems they made a good choice. I hope so. You never know. Well, the numbers point to that. So if we're, if, if we're even if looking at it coldly. Yeah, I think Meetup is in a very good situation right now. Um, I think when I joined Meetup was losing uh, in 2019 before the pandemic, $18 million a year. Um, it was at risk of actually getting shut down by WeWork um, once the pandemic hit, which would have been a real sad thing for the world, I may add. We're in 193 countries. Um, and we're now um, kind of uh, been profitable for the last three years and have kind of more profit. Not that we have tons of profit. We have an appropriate amount of profit um, than we've ever had kind of as a company. So that's that's very important because you can't be a sustainable business if you're just constantly losing money, especially after being around for 20 years. It's not like we've been around for like a year or two and we're a startup and like we're supposed to be losing money. You shouldn't be losing money after 20 years. So I think to answer your question, when Adam Newman interviewed me 
he he wasn't looking at my experience in um, running community-based businesses because I didn't have any. Hmm. He was looking at my experience as a leader. He was looking at my approach to business. He was looking at my approach to people. Um, he was looking at my makeup, psychology, family, even asked me a lot of questions about my family, things like that. Um, when I met with Artie Minson, who was the president and CFO of WeWork, it really wasn't that different. I think when I think WeWork was looking for someone that could lead a change management process and could really lead change. Um, and I had done a lot of change, leading change when I was CEO of Investopedia and when I was president of Seeking Alpha and other things that I'd done previously in my career. Um, so I think that's what they were looking for, someone who could be appropriately humble, but at the same time, um, aggressive and willing to uh, rattle things up and make change very quickly and not afraid to do so. And uh, that was me. Today, there's a giant challenge of getting respectable, loyal employees, getting them motivated. They have so many options. They have so much knowledge uh, and, and the pandemic also managing them. So like, what, what would you be your decision making of what type of employee to take or uh, how to manage, uh, you know, like these the psychology of all those options between all the bad things that happen. Uh, my overriding perspective on management comes from a conversation I actually had with Jack Welch. So Jack Welch was the CEO of General Electric. When he left General Electric, um, it was the highest market cap company in the world. And because I was uh, on this, the CEO of Investopedia, which was owned by IAC, Barry Diller's company, um, Jack Welch was on the board, so I got to spend time with, with him at kind of a company office. I sat down with him, and I said, Jack, or Mr. Welch, actually, is what I said, because he, he deserves the Mr. Welch, not Jack. The Mr. Welch, can you tell me, you won by Time Magazine the manager of the century, of the 20th century. He was listed as the Time Magazine's manager of the 20th century. So this is a, a Bucky. This is an expert in, in things. I said, what is the best management tip that you could give me? He said one word. He said, the most important thing in building relationships with employees is trust. And the best way to build trust is with transparency. If you don't have trust of your employees, you don't have anything. So my that was consistent what I've always believed in. Um, but my management adage is real radical candor and building trust. And, 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 and if an employee doesn't trust me, and many employees, by the way, when I first joined at meet up because I was hired by WeWork and they didn't like WeWork, didn't trust me, right? Um, when you don't have employee trust, you don't have anything. And if you do have employee trust, if you have people who trust you, like I have numerous employees that this is their third company that they work for, worked with me in, um, quite a few employees. We have, I think, 10 different employees from Investopedia where I, who I just um, you know, come from prior to this. When you do have trust, it overcomes everything. Overcome because then when you have trust as a foundation, just like in a marriage, just like in a relationship, just like in anything, just like in a parent child, anything, when you have trust, that's a foundation that you could then give each other critical feedback. And you know that you're there to help the other person. You're not there to bring them down, you're there to bring them up. So many things in life are not black or white, they're not good or bad. They're kind of could be seen through the lens and they could be gray. When you have trust, then every single thing that's in the gray area is hopefully seen in a positive way rather than a negative way, which is so often potentially the case. So that's my answer. I mean, everything I do is about how do you build trust? And, and to me, the biggest ingredient is transparency. So we, 
We share all of our financials with the entire company every single month, good, bad, and ugly. All of our key metrics with the whole company, and we say, here's where we're failing. Here's where we're failing. Here's the mistakes that we made. Let me share another mistake that I made. When you share mistakes, when you share failures, you also build a lot of trust. And I'd like to think of myself as like the upside organizational chart. I'm a CEO. I'm on the bottom, not the top on the bottom. My job is to support and enable the success of every single person who works directly for me. And that's it. That's it. If the, our head of marketing is successful, if our head of finance is successful, if our head of products is successful, guess what? The company becomes very successful. I don't even think about myself at all. Do you miss being like, uh, you know, as an enabler, do you miss being like the, the work, like working on as a specialist? Like, because like uh, sometimes like being an enabler, you don't have time at work. You're just enabling other people. It's, it's, it's the power is there, but you know, it's a funny thing because, you know, so many startup founders struggle with that a lot. So many startup founders had been doers, doers, doers. And when they start their company, they're doing, 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 they're not enabling. They're constantly doing, and they're, they're doing everything themselves. I, for whatever reason it is, always enjoyed being an orchestra leader as opposed to playing an instrument. I always actually felt like there's more power in being the enabler and helping to facilitate other people to be as successful. But even, for, even with human resources, I was doing that same thing. I was helping to enable managers to be more effective managers. Um, so I actually don't miss it at all. And the reason for that is because I'm also obsessed with time efficiency. And I believe that your time is a lot better spent if you're enabling hundreds of people to be successful than if you're just trying to do things directly only yourself to be successful. On occasion, if I'm doing an Excel spreadsheet, I actually do kind of enjoy it, <laughs> but that's like 1% of my time. And sometimes at the end of it, I think, why did I just do that? I probably shouldn't have spent the time doing that. So I really like to use my time as valuable as possible because there's a lot of more other important things in life than work. And if you spend all of your time working, then you're not doing a lot of other things that 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 this beautiful world and, and life has to offer. So um, I try to do as little direct doing as possible and as much enabling as I can. So I don't miss it as the answer. No. When do you feel like you're like the best conductor ever? When I'm completely unnecessary. I love it. Because the more necessary that I am, it means the more challenges and problems that are going on and dysfunctions potentially in an organization where the marketing person isn't talking to the salesperson and the product person isn't talking to the, you know, the, the tech, the tech team. And I have to intervene and I have to get those two groups together. I have to understand what the challenge is here, what the challenge is there. If a person is not doing the job that they need to do and I need to give critical feedback or I need to look for a new hire that takes a lot of time. If I need to swoop into an area and do the things the market, head of marketing or head of whatever area is supposed to be doing, then I'm doing the stuff. I should have a head of marketing or head of, I'm not, our head of marketing, by the way, is amazing. So I don't know why I keep saying that group, but let's just, you know, tech, whatever the, your content, whatever the group happens to be. So, so my KPI is how necessary am I? And right now, I'm not that necessary. Love it. Love it. I Great do. KPI. I love it too. I love Amazing it too. Amazing KPI. And then speaking of challenges, um, so the pandemic hit, did you believe that you're going to get through it? Yes, always. I'm a belief kind of guy. So, you know, I think as a CEO, if you're not optimistic, um, then you can't expect other people to be optimistic around you. Unfortunately, I don't have to work hard to be optimistic. I'm just naturally very optimistic. So when the question was, do, do, you know, do we think, do I think Meetup was ever going to die? No. Did I think Meetup would ever, whatever was, uh, could end up in someone else's hands that could destroy Meetup when we were doing the sales process? No, I really just believed at all times that 
that if I worked really hard, things will work out. I never believed it because there were too many other things that we could do to help to fix things. So when when um, when the pandemic hit and we saw all of our events in China going down by 95%, it was all of our events then in Italy going down by 95%, we're like, well, this is not going to come to the United States. I and mean, it was like swine flu or SARS or something that was just kind of like Asia, yeah, maybe right. a little in Europe, not going to come here. Then it came here. We were actually the first meetup, a meetup employee. We don't have that many employees. A meetup employee was the first or the second case of COVID in Mount Sinai Hospital in oh, New York. Respect. Co-founder. <laughs> exactly. So we were early. You know, paradoxically, there was an article written about how how ironic it is that meetup is in, in, in a we, meetup in a WeWork building was one of the first companies to have to leave in like March second or something like that um, um, to. Um, work from home remotely, but for only a week, right? <laughs> so so I didn't believe it because after a week of it hitting, we got all the engineers in the room and we said, what is Meetup about? What is our mission? Is our mission about IRL, which means in real life, getting together in person, which we had always done, or is our mission really about um, uh, connecting and building deep connections between people? And the answer is, of course, it's about building connections. Well, the only way you can build connections right now is online and it's Zoom. And by the way, people need it more than at any other time um, because of the isolation that was happening during the pandemic. Right. So we quickly got all of our engineers together and we really built an MVP version. I, I have to tell you, every meetup event had to be connected to a location. So we had to find some random island in the middle of the Pacific Ocean that didn't ever have any meetup events, but was still listed as a location and connect all online events to this one little item. It was so ridiculous what we had to do to kind of launch the product uh, to make it work for online. We didn't even have time zone information because if uh, an event was in Germany, everyone, the only people going to it were people in Germany. You didn't need time zone information. So we, we quickly launched something within a week. And since then, we've had over 5 million online events with over 20 million people coming to online events. And for tens of millions of people, it really helped them during the pandemic. And it's going to stay forever because if you have like an ecstatic dance meetup, someone sent me an email about this. You have an ecstatic, you know, people of 20 different countries all doing ecstatic dance together. Like how cool is that versus, you know, only depending on it, you know, in one city. So, so right now today, in March, as we speak, 2022, we're 73% in person and 27% online, and uh, and it keeps growing, and it keeps growing. So we'll, we'll probably end up at like 80% in person. Like with respect to your decision-making framework, how does that apply, or did it at all apply to you know navigating that crisis? There's a number of principles in Decide and Conquer uh, around decision-making. I'm not going to share like the 10, all 10 of them, of which principles. Uh, there are 44 decisions, but 10 principles. And like a couple of the principles, though, were things like disagreement and the importance of disagreement and having a, a team around you uh, who thoroughly disagrees with the things that you say. Um, because unless you have people to disagree, you're not going to make the smartest decision you know, possible. I talked also a lot in, in the book and in, in decision framework about the importance of being kind versus just being nice. Sometimes people think that they don't want to hurt other people's feelings and it's not a nice thing to do, but that's not good management. Sometimes the kindest thing you could do is to say to someone, this isn't working out. It's time for you to start looking for something else. Or we need to shut this area of business down, even though I know is your passion, because um, 
because it just doesn't make good business sense. Or I know that from a career perspective, this is something you desperately want to do and get career exposure for, but it's not actually the thing that we need as a company to be focused on. Um, not as nice, but but the kindest thing that you could do because it makes things things sustainable. So I think there was a, quite a few um, principles that that I talk about in the book um, that apply to every single thing that we do: transparency and decision making, um, bold decision making, and just being willing to make radical change. You know, very quickly. Um, even the, though there were quite a few naysayers at Meetup that said, "No, no, we can't allow this." Uh, you know, one point our founder, Scott Heckman, took a VR device and took a sledgehammer and was like, chomp, smash it into pieces because we, we are we use technology to get people off of technology. We're not about get, keeping people on technology. The number one reason why people, why we, we rejected meetup organizers actually was because they wanted to have online meetup groups. So we rejected tens of thousands of meetup organizers prior to the pandemic um, because of that. So so it took, took a lot of kind of bold actions that that took, you know, uh, confidence and and made a lot of people uh, disagree with me, and some people left the company because of that. And you know, I respect that as well. So, what are you up to now? So, I'm actually physically right now in Austin, Texas, because it's South by Southwest. Uh, really excited about South by Southwest. Getting back to kind of in person connecting around tech, huge tech conference. Um, I'm speaking tomorrow, actually, uh, at an event. There'll be 500 people or so, you know, at the at the tech event in Austin, kind of around around uh, Meetup. So, you know, I really I'm trying to evangelize Meetup as best as I can. I think, you know, my belief is that 100 years ago there was a time period called the Roaring Twenties when um, it was after World War One, after after the Spanish flu. And this, it's not a coincidence that the Roaring Twenties when people had parties and people went out and people started really doing things was a direct result of those two actions. I think it's going to be the Roaring Twenties again. Um, I think that more and more people are going to be getting out and desperate to keep to go out and do things. And I think Meetup is going to see, is already seeing, I should say, and will continue to see kind of tremendous growth um, because of the fact that so many people want to go out, join groups, do things, meet people, and get kind of get back out into the world. And even if there is another resurgence of something, I think hopefully we're more capable of managing that, you know, when that happens. And, and know that it's going to be for hopefully a short period of time, like like from in most cases, Omicron was. And, and I got to say, the meetup is also at the same time a fallback. Because even if, you know, at the end of the day, people do end up at home again, then they can join the online community, which is Correct. which means the world. You know, you, you're saying how a psychiatrist, at, at least one, is now prescribing meetup. I think that's phenomenal. And many and many more than one. Actually, it's it's I I for one reason or another, maybe the people group the group of people that I tend to hang out with. I know a lot of therapists and psychologists, <laughs> and everyone knows meetup. Everyone tells me that for anxiety, for depression. Uh, meetup is the absolute best thing for for people to do. Um, college students who feel isolated. Um, so many we made we made meetup free to be a, a if you're an organizer to be an organizer if you're a college student if you're dot, dot edu email and that that brought in a, a slew of additional college students because it's just so important during this time especially for college students who felt isolated. Um, so yeah, I think if someone said to me, what's the worst thing that could potentially happen to meetup. Uh, I'd say you can't meet in person. And we, we went through, we persevered, we're stronger than we were, you know, because of that. And, um, you know, I, I think, I think, I think we're, it's, we're only here to continue to grow. And, you know, that's what I'm focused on. Meet up, meet up succeeding and, and hopefully, you know, to some extent, people learning as much as they can from different mistakes and failures and challenges and stresses, you know, that I've had in kind of, you know, my, my career to date as well from the book. 
I hope it, it keeps on meeting up with people because the generations today, just between the, the difference between connecting to people and engagement in a virtual level and a physical level, I think they're missing out on, on a lot of, um, like I, I'm thinking to myself of how, how efficient we are. You know, we have to stop being so efficient because then mistakes yeah. and creativity are happening. And that's what I love about Meetup and the idea itself. And, you know, and that's, that's, that, that's the charm of it. So I just hope it's that. Yeah, you've got to put your phone down. you got to shut your phone off. you got to put it in a separate room. And you just got to find ways of connecting with other people. And, you know, we try to do that. We try to model that in our family. It's something that I struggle with because uh, I do try to be responsive and, and, and get a lot of emails and texts. Um, but at the same time, it's, it's very important to have an important separation between, you know, technology and, and, and one's life. And, and I think that for, for many people, it's extraordinarily difficult to, especially for younger, for younger people, um, Gen Zers, it's extraordinarily difficult. Um, but, but I, I'm hopeful. I'm hopeful that, that as people kind of get older and they see the uh, amazing experiences of kind of being around people, the energy that exists when you're in person, the, the energy around each person and how you could feel that energy when you're talking to that person in person and the serendipity that happens also when you go to an event and, and just, Oh my gosh, I can't believe I met this person who I coincidentally, um, lives right across the street from me or worked at the same job or I went to college with 20 years ago. Like those serendipitous moments are amazing life experiences. And those happen not when you're staring at a phone, they happen when you kind of get out there and you meet people. So hopefully people will be experiencing that and, you know, now and in the future more. What's your superpower? So my superpower, I would say, you probably tell from this conversation, um, I have a lot of energy. Um, I, people always say to me, like, you know, I, I jump in front of a classroom and I'm jumping on the table and I'm <laughs> doing all these things and, and I feed off of it. And, um, you know, I think it's, I think I'm lucky to have that. I work at it by the way, as well. I, I, I exercise fanatically. I just, I, I, every single morning, pretty much I exercise uh, and I try to eat as healthily as possible. And I try to surround myself by positive energy and positive things. Um, but I would say energy is probably my uh, kind of best uh, trait that I like the most about myself. What exercise do you do? <laughs> so I do triathlons. I, I love swimming. Um, I love bike riding. And I can say I love running, but running is very easy to do. It doesn't take much work. Um, so I do more running than the other two. Um, but I also enjoy listening to podcasts while I'm running. So that works out quite well. So uh, that's that's kind of what the, the, I, I try to do all three of them, and I'm signed up for a couple of triathlons, uh, uh, you know, this coming summer. Movement, a lot of movement. That's definitely true. You know, it's funny because talking about childhood, my my mom, when I was three years old, was told by the doctors that they wanted to put me on Ritalin, which is something I think to calm kids, right? And my mom was like, absolutely not. Cause I would just, I would wake up at five o'clock in the morning, jump in their bed and you know, they had a, this bouncy contraption and there's a picture of me at like one or two years old. I would spend hours and hours and hours just jumping up and down in this bouncy contraption. Cause I always had this kind of energy, uh, in me. Uh, and it's funny, a friend of mine told me that, um, jumping on a, on a, on a trampoline is like very healthy. So we bought like a mini trampoline. I still take a lot of phone calls, not right now during this podcast, but I still take a lot of phone calls just standing there jumping on a trampoline. Really? So whether it's 47 years old or two years old, 45 years later, you know, I still enjoy the I jumping jack. You. How wise that your mother didn't end up, you know, sort of stoning you out of your, your natural state. 
yeah, I think, uh, you know, my, my parents are great people and I was very lucky to, uh, have grown up with, uh, in their household for sure. For sure. Very lucky. And your kryptonite? My kryptonite. Um, I am impatient. I know that sounds like a cop-out, but it's definitely a real negative trait of mine. It's not just a cop-out statement. I think I'm impatient at times as a parent. I think I'm impatient as a manager. I think I am um, uh, impatient with myself, and that could lead to more stress than I should be taking on. Um, so I think having a little more meditation, a little more patience, um, I kind of think it's, everything's always two sides of the same coin. We have a lot of energy. You tend to be impatient, right? Everything's a double-edged sword. So it's the, it's the second edge of that, of that sword, which makes it, I kind of think more difficult for me, for myself and for my loved ones and others. Um, and it's, it's, it's something that I do try to work on. And exercising actually makes me more patient, but yoga actually helps me out quite a bit. So I do yoga. I did yoga during the summertime a couple of times a week because um, it was on the beach and that was really nice. Wow. Uh, I need, I do you know, maybe every other week I'll go to a yoga class. And you meditate? Um, meditate I have done. Um, I find yoga to be um, more valuable to me personally. I've gone in the Calm app and Headspace apps and I do it on occasion, but I actually find yoga to be much more helpful for me in, in, uh, and calming and relaxing than, than meditation personally. Yeah, I think it's also a form, you know, at the end of the day, you focus on breathing there, so. Exactly. Where can people find you? You can send me a LinkedIn invite. I'm always happy to link in with people to be able to connect. Um, that's easy enough to find. Uh, David Siegel at Meetup. You can send me an email if you want to, david at meetup.com. You know, that's fine, too. I always like meeting interesting people. In terms of the book, you could buy the book at uh, Amazon or the audible copy of the book is like the, the audio version is phenomenal. So people that like audiobooks, it's very good as well as the Kindle version. Amazon, if you're outside of the U.S., then, then I think Book Depository um, is, is a great place to, to get the book as well. Um, Twitter at David Mary Siegel, you know, not that hard to find a, a CEO typically. So feel free to find, try, try me on any of those any of those ways. David, thank you so much. It really feels like you're helping the, the thing that you love most, people and making a genuine impact, and we're genuinely rooting for you. Oh, well, thank you so much. I'm definitely rooting for the two of you. I think that this podcast helps to give a more human perspective on people who are oftentimes put on some pedestal and people perceive them to be, you know, uh, everything is all easy and everything is a straight line and things are never a straight line. Things are always very curvy with ups and downs all around, and uh, I respect a lot of the things that you do. And uh, thank you for having me on. I really do appreciate it. Just for the motivational thing, side, I, these people, which is like you, that they're optimistic and they have great energy. We're missing that as people. Just keep on doing that. And that's like, a, that's, a, that's great. The abundance, we're missing the abundance and I love it. And thank you for, like, so much for that. Thank you. Bye. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. Real life. Superpowers. Superpowers.